I'm very, very pleased that we uh, succeeded in uh, luring Peter Cook here to Oxford to, uh, to speak to us um, on a topic that at first glance looks rather simple, but uh, the closer you look at it, the more complex and interesting it actually becomes. Everyone seems to know about Somali pirates and uh, what the issue is, and um, most people in the field agree that uh, private uh, armed security companies are at least part of the solution. Uh, the most famous one-liner is uh, no ship secured by a uh, private armed security has ever been hijacked. Um, still valid at this point, I think. Um, but not all is well uh, in the field of private uh, maritime security. An industry like this, unregulated, brand new, attracts cowboys. Um, the clients often have no means of finding out uh, who is this private security company I'm dealing with? Who am I hiring here to uh, get on board of my ship with a couple of guns? Um, and um, they don't know how these companies have acquired their arms, how they transport them, um, what precisely the rules of engagement are, re especially regarding the use of force on international waters, in various territorial waters, working under various criminal law jurisdictions, um, some of you will have heard of the uh, incident off the Indian coast in February of last year where um, Italian security guards um, shot, uh, allegedly shot Indian fishermen um, off, the, off the Indian coast and uh, the, the Indians were quite enraged about this uh, and it turned into a state affair almost immediately because in this case um, the marines were, uh, were part of the Italian army so uh, now the dispute is at the point where Italy is uh, pondering whether to sue India in front of the International Court of Justice. Uh, now we can imagine that a private security company would be in a much weaker position uh, engaged in a similar dispute. Um, so it is more and more recognized that there is a real need for regulation. And, uh, and the uh, Security Association for the Maritime Industry, founded in May 2011, um, is leading the case for regulation to be developed from within the industry. Um, that, of course, is no easy undertaking because uh, the IMO and a large number of uh, nation states are drafting regulation at the same time, uh, sometimes jointly, sometimes completely independently of each other. So we're now we're, we're listening to a man who is living a political science regulation case study every day of his life. Um, so who is Peter Cook? Peter Cook was a student at the London Nautical School before joining the Royal Marines in 1981. Spent 24 years as a Royal Marine, rising to the rank of Major. Peter was involved in all aspects of maritime security, from maritime counter-terrorism to formulating counter-piracy policy and procedures. Uh, left the corps in uh, 2005, uh, briefly worked uh, for a hedge fund, and then formed his own consultancy and worked in maritime security. Um, one interesting fact is that uh, Lloyd's recently published a list of the uh, 100 most influential people uh, in the shipping industry, and uh, Peter Cook ranked uh, 19. So uh, we, are, we are tonight, we're having someone who knows what he's talking about, who knows the industry from the inside, and who is at the very cutting edge of uh, the current uh, developments regarding regulations of private maritime security companies. 
and looking forward to uh, your talk. Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, thanks very much for that introduction, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And it's actually a great pleasure for me to come here and talk this afternoon, um, and I've been looking forward to it. Um, now, what I'm going to aim to do is talk really for about half an hour, um, because I think in a situation like this we'll get a lot more out of questions. Um, maritime security on the face of it is very simple. But actually, once you begin to scrape away what is happening, it becomes amazingly complex. And I'm going to try and make sure that I bring that out. And when I was looking at the website, um, I noticed that the purpose of these talks is to elucidate, explicate, explicate and educate about a new subject. I'm going to endeavour to do that um, as I go through the presentation today. Um, and for the bits that I miss, we can leave that for questions. Okay, so what am I going to talk about? I'm going to give you a quick background about the maritime security industry. Um, and then talk about the maritime industry, because it is absolutely key that once you start talking about maritime security, you understand the client and their drivers. What makes them work? Why do they do what they do? And then talk about the differences between land security and maritime security. Uh, the evolution of the process and where we stand in that evolutionary process right now. Um, how will international compliance be achieved? And another hot topic, and there are lots around at the moment, rules of engagement versus rules for the use of force. Right, so without further ado, three key facts here that people tend to forget. Now, when I was in the Royal Marines, we got told this all the time. And it's something you can't have sea blindness. 70%, that's over two-thirds of the surface of the globe, is covered in sea. Most of that is the high seas. That means it is, in many ways, ungoverned, state, uh, ungoverned space. 80% of the population of the world live within 60 miles or 100 kilometers of the, of the sea, bearing in mind that the population has passed 7 billion on its way to 9. And 90 plus percent of all trade moves by sea. So the sea is absolutely key to everything that we do. Oops. Let's just go back. Right, the paramount maritime security industry. Is it a new industry? Well, I think it must be. Because when I was doing a bit of pre research, I thought, right, well, let's see what Wikipedia says about it. They don't. They haven't actually identified the private maritime security industry as existing. Even though, interestingly enough, it brings approximately £50 million into this country every month. So it's half a billion pounds a year, more than. So it is. It's there. It's happening. Um, but it is new. Now, the first real private maritime security companies did exist. Um, started up in the 1970s. One of the oldest ones started up then, but they really worked in kind of niche areas rather than them having a big chunk of the market. There wasn't really that much of a requirement for them. And the kind of things that they did was providing security or security guidance for um, cruise liners, um, providing people that went on board there, because once you put 2,000 people into a very small enclosed space, keep them there for three weeks um, and uh, feed them lots of alcohol, you get inevitable problems. Um, but also um, 
the clearance of uh, unexploded ordnance underwater, um, and little things like that that really required a niche area. However, as a result of the terrorist attacks in 9-11, the International Maritime Organization um, decided that they needed to draft um, a new set of regulations so that a similar kind of thing couldn't happen with a large ocean-going ship going into a port. And so they drew up very swiftly um, the International Ships and Port Security Code, the ISPS, which came into action in 2004. And this was really the first explosion of maritime security companies where we saw them established so they could train people in what to do in this particular area. And then, really, the most recent explosion of companies that we have seen is all to do with the increase in piracy, particularly off the east coast of Africa. Um, now, in SAMI, we estimate that there are in excess of 200 companies out there. At the moment, we have 178 companies from 37 countries on our books. Um, but it is a bit difficult to tell because companies appear and disappear like contacts on a radar screen. There is no consistency about it. Um, and people will start one company up and then it will disappear because they can't get trade or for whatever reason. Um, is that too many? Yes, it is. My prediction is, and that, this is a very conservative one, that that 200 companies will be around about 50 within 18 months. So I think we're going to see a significant reduction and that. I'll be able to link that in with another problem that we'll have later on that I'll touch on. So we do see a maturation of the industry. Everything has been happening very quickly in the maritime security industry, and so therefore I see that shrink happening quite quickly as well. But maritime security is a growth industry. The International Chamber of Shipping, which is an organisation that represents most of the main nation chambers of shipping, including the UK, US and lots of others, predict that over the next 20 years the volume of trade moving by sea is going to increase by 50%. Over that same period of time, the Western Navy is going to shrink by 30%. You don't need to be a mathematician to work out where the capability gap is there. The cruise line of fleet between 2006-2010 increased their capacity to carry passengers by 50%. Today there are more than 520,000 people on cruise liners at sea. Okay, some of them are ashore in various locations, but you get what I'm saying. That's growing. The cruise liner industry, and I've recently been talking to a whole bunch of um, company security officers for Carnival um, and uh, Royal Caribbean, um, and they are more or less overwhelmed with business right now. Very, very popular. You don't just have cruise liners for um, the silver generation, shall we say, but you have cruise liners that cater for all kinds of things. Families, um, many of them are um, casinos out in the Far East, floating casinos. There's all kinds of things that they have around the world. There are also more than 4,500 super yachts. Um, 200 of those are helicopter capable. And the largest ones are bigger than Type 45 destroyer. Um, and the top yards for building super yachts right now are at capacity um, and the second hand market is if you will excuse the pun buoyant. So that's there. The money is there. It's moving. And each of those particular customers, whether you're talking about a commercial ship, a cruise liner <coughs> or, or ferry um, or um, a super yacht, requires very different kinds of security.
the offshore oil and gas business. Well, the global thirst for oil and gas is unquenchable. Um, and as the price of oil goes up, inevitably, um, the off some of the offshore reserves are going to be tapped. When you look at the 52 nations that are currently undeveloped, 67% of which have a coastline and where they lie, um, and you then put that template over the next one, which is where the reserves are, um, there's a lot of overlap. And last but by no means least, port facilities. Um, there are over 8,000 ports around the world. Population is growing. As we all know, scarcity of resources, the easiest place to get hold of a car goes either in the port before it goes on the ship or after it's just come off. One of the other interesting statistics about the way that population is growing right now, with a population of 7 billion, the um, middle class is around about 1 billion. By the time we get to 9 billion, the middle class will be 3 billion. In order for middle class to grow at that speed, they need two things to be moved around in significant quantities, both by sea. One is um, steel or iron ore, and the other one is um, coal and gas to make um, steel and electricity. All of that has to be moved by sea. But it's global. These are the acts of piracy and robbery at sea for 2012. Um, of the 278 that are identified there, only 71 of them were actually in the Indian Ocean, or the Northwest Indian Ocean, should I say, the high-risk area, which is this area here, okay, the Somali pirate area. The two hot spots right now where more is going on than anywhere else, which is being reported, and that is a key phrase here, South China Sea, and West Africa. Two areas of very different kinds of uh, legislation and challenges that have to be overcome. One thing I would mention though here in this particular area is there is a concern, a significant concern, that there is lack of reporting. I think there's always been a lack of reporting but I think that's increasing. And one of the reasons why that is increasing um, is because of the Enrique Lexo. She was taken alongside, held alongside for seven weeks. That owner did not get any money back for that, costing more than $3 million. Okay? When I was talking to a bunch of ship owners a few weeks ago about the concern about under-reporting, after a couple of glasses of wine, and they've been saying, oh yes, you know, this happens, that happens, the other happens, a couple of glasses of wine, why would you report? We've got nothing to gain out of reporting. It'll put the insurance up, it'll mean that we'll have to pay more for the security, and if we report an incident, we may have to go into a port and then we'll be held there for an investigation to be carried out. We lose our cargo, we lose all kinds of things. It just costs us money. And right now, the maritime industry is under significant financial stress. Okay? The container market, as just one example, and this is meant to be one of the best barometers, the container market is one-third overburdened with capacity. All right? Many of those companies are fighting for their lives. And so whenever you begin to fight for your life, you make decisions that will mean that you'll be able to continue being at sea. So therefore, that's why they have this attitude of, why report? Okay? You'll never get completely accurate reporting anyway. There is no way that I think you can force them to do that. So what are the drivers for the commercial shipping industry? And let's just look at the commercial shipping industry at the moment because that's th these are the guys that are hit really by piracy. 
there are three stakeholder groups. At the head, you have the shipping company, so the ship owner, the operator and manager, and the charterers. So the guy that owns the box, runs the box, and, and fills the box. Okay. <coughs> then you have the flag states, the vast majority of which are open registries. They are commercial entities and are not necessarily nation states. I'll give you a couple of examples here. Um, the third largest flag state is the Marshall Islands. They have $85 million on their books, um, which is just over 2,500 hulls. Um, Marshall Islands itself, geographically, is 5,000 square miles in the Pacific Ocean to the northeast of Australia. They get 80% of their GDP from the registry. The registry is run from an office in a place called Reston, which is just outside the Beltway in Washington. It is a commercial company. One other example, there was a Danish company that was hit by pirates in um, 2008, end of 2008. Unfortunately for them, they were only held for six weeks. But at the end of that, that particular company, which is quite a large company, said, uh, right, okay, we're not going to have that happen again. How, security officer, do we ensure that none of our ships get taken ever again? Because the catastrophic effect on the company is so great, we just cannot afford and we don't want that to happen again. We don't want our seafarers to have to go through that again. And the security officer said, well, the only way that we know that we can guarantee, or clo as close to guarantee as possible, is to have armed guards on board. And they said, fine. Now, unusually for this particular company, every single one of their ships was flagged on the same flag. So the company went along to the flag and said, right, okay, as a result of what happened, we're going armed. The flag said, you can't. We don't allow it. The company said, we're changing flag which is the other thing you can do, just like changing from the AA to the RAC. And um, the flag said, rule, give us 24 hours. They changed their laws. Okay, they're commercial entities. And the third area down here is marine insurance. Everybody's trying to cut costs, and this one of the areas that they can cut costs by doing things right. Now, the interesting thing about all of these, those three main points, not one is a government. This is all about making money. All right? And that is one of the big differences that people find quite difficult to, to understand. I'd be very interested to hear what Richard has to say about this. I'm trying to be slightly controversial here, but really just trying to push something. That, um, and the thing is, when I talk to ship owners and, and these guys about this, they agree I'm right. Now, the glue that holds this thing together is the International Maritime Organization. That's um, an agency of the United Nations. I'll talk about them more later on. There are other factors. There's port and coastal states. They obviously have an influence on what happens. The master crew and the biggest union in the world called the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF, has a membership of 800,000 people. Okay? They do influence things as well. But these are the main three. By the way, SOLAS, UNCLOS, SCTW, and ISPS, I'll talk about those later on, they're a set of regulations. But maritime security is not the same as land security. Interestingly enough, this is a direct quote from one of the main land security companies in the United Kingdom. Okay, they made lots of money out of being in Iraq. I'm not going to tell you which one it was, you might be able to guess. 
One of the main directors said this to me. They don't even appear in maritime security because they do not understand the maritime industry. I'm going to return to that quite a few times, but land security, single jurisdiction, maritime security, multi-jurisdiction. You get onto a ship in Singapore, you go to Rotterdam, you go through 16 different jurisdictions, including the flag that you're sailing under. That makes things very complex. On land, limited stakeholders. On a container ship, if, you've got, if you're on a container ship that holds 15,000 20-foot TEUs, there's over 14,000 different business interests. makes it quite complex. You have to think about things in a different way. Um, with land, there's a political drive to get a desired end state, whether it be Afghanistan or whatever. In shipping, they just want a commercial continuum. They don't want anything to stop. They just need to keep it going. That's how globalization will keep going. We, we don't have a warehouse um, uh, culture anymore. We need stuff to be continually moving into the country by sea. There are a significant number of government contracts after we're in the 10th anniversary year of, of the second Gulf War. Um, and the number of government contracts that were handed out to main security companies as a result of that war was significant. There are no government contracts at sea. They're all private or they're all commercial contracts. These are the differences. And it does actually paint a very, very different picture if you're walking into it, which is why none of the big companies... G4S, Control Risks, Aegis, those kind of companies are really in the area of maritime security because they find it very challenging. It's a very different area. Many of them have offices where they deal with governments all the time. Certainly G4S and uh, Control Risks do. Um, they, ha they, they find it very difficult to comprehend exactly how this whole thing works. And they will not get a place at the table at the IMO. They will not be listened to because they're a commercial company. Now, the evolution of maritime security regulation structure. Actually, whilst the maritime industry is one of the most litigious, um, if you look at everything in comparison, it didn't start until that thing sank. 15th of April, 1912 the Titanic sank. They then decided, ah, oh, right, okay, we'd better have some regulations for what we do on ships, like we'd better have enough lifeboats for everybody on the ship. We'd better have a 24-hour watch going on with the wireless. New bit of kit, but well, that's what we're going to need. That was the first time that regulation was really introduced at sea. And so it has gone on, and every single time that we've had a major event at sea has introduced a new piece of legislation. So actually, legislation is quite new in the maritime industry in comparison to what happens on land anyway. But because it is all commercially driven, then that is why um, it's all about money, and so that's why it's got so litigious so quickly. But I've talked about 9-11. We know what happened there as a result of which the ISPS code was introduced, um, and that was really when maritime security was recognised as actually coming onto the coming onto uh, onto the radar screen. But concurrent with that, and as a result of um, the introduction of all the private military companies and private security companies, there were a number of initiatives. And the first one was really the Montreux document, um, issued on the 17th of September, 2008. 
that was right around about the time that we had the Blackwater incident in, in Iraq. However, and people say, well, why don't you use the Montreux document for this? Because of that. Only to be used at times of armed conflict. Now, the ethos works pretty well, but, but that's, that's one of the main problems there. Piracy and incidents at sea, it is not armed conflict. Okay? So many of the things there don't work. The next document that came along in 2010 was um, the um, International Code of Conduct for Private Security Service Providers, rather unfortunately nicknamed ICOC. Um, and the problem with ICOC was that it doesn't cover maritime security. Initially, they were going to try and encompass everything. Uh, commercial air, land, maritime security, and the training of personnel and everything. But from the end of paragraph 7 there, you can see that we'll do that later on. And whilst people were invited to go and sign it from the 9th of November 2010, um, it, that actually, they had no teeth at the moment. And one of the problems that they had, it, it, I have no criticism of the, of the ethos of the document itself, it's spot on indeed. When we were forming SAMI, you had to be a signatory on it, so we fully support it. However, in order for you to lay down something, you've got to be able to enforce it. They have no way of enforcing this at the moment. And they have said, right, we're going to set up a, uh, a body to do this, um, and the security company is going to pay for it, and we require a budget. It was significant. I think it was 12 million Swiss francs a year or something like that, um, and the exchange rate is not not that different, um, which was going, you know, and they were expecting the security companies to pay for it. Not going to work. So I don't know exactly where that stands at the moment, but it is unlikely that that will be moving forward particularly quickly. So that seems to be, to be honest with you, pretty much dead in the water, certainly as far as maritime security is concerned. So this is the place that actually makes the big difference as far as the maritime industry is concerned the IMO. One of the things, because I've, I've been to the United Nations and the IMO, one of the big differences between the IMO and the United Nations is that you get the normal kind of semicircular area where all the flag states sit. There's 167 of them, and they all sit, and there's a top table. But then you get a box at the back, about five rows of seats. Each row is about 40 seats long. And that is what is filled up by industry. So all of the main shipping associations. And there's a shipping association for Intertanko, Intercargo, Cruise Liner International Association, the parcel tankers, the guys who look after um, uh, gas tankers um, and the terminals, uh, the um, oil company, International Maritime Forum, the Nautical Institute, each of the unions is there. It's a big chunk. And whilst there are only observers, they do have a significant influence. So it's quite a different dynamic that plays in, in, in the way that decisions are made. But it is absolutely key. And so in May of 2011, and Sammy was very fortunate in so much as we were actually there whilst these were being written, two circulars were written as a way of countering um, piracy. 1405 and 1406. Now, 
this is the way that the IMO works and you can get hold of all these particular documents if you need them from their website. But this was interim guidance um, for 1405 as ship operators, ship managers and masters on the way that they should employ privately contracted armed security personnel. 1406 was to give guidance to the flag states. So they came out with that first document or first set of documents that gave, as far as the IMO is concerned, significant amount of guidance to everybody. And then last year they came out with a further two documents um, 1443, 1444, and these were designed to tell maritime security companies or private maritime security companies how to behave and what to do and how to do it. They also decided at that particular uh, MSC, Maritime Safety Committee, that um, well, they were not going to accept any form of self-regulation and that it had to be done centrally. And so because they have a long history of utilising the International Organisation for Standards, they asked ISO to create a standard that they could then take forward. So between, um, and, and there were several documents that were also going to go along with 1443, and so there was a core drafting team established that had two members of industry, two, two of the main shipping associations, BIMCO and the International Chamber of Shipping, and also um, SAMI was involved, and a UK-focused organisation called SCAG, which stands for Security and Complex Environments Group. So there were four main players there um, that were inputting into this. That was finalised um, in September of, this, of last year and was then pushed forward to the next MSC in 91. Um, I'll just go back one, actually. Talk about this in a second. Um, and was uh, welcomed by the IMO, which is their way of endorsing it and taking it forward. But there's, there's more to that story, which I'll talk about in a minute. But concurrently with that, there have been a lot, whole load of other publications. Um, this first one here, Best Management Practice, it's in its fourth iteration. What this does is it actually gives guidance to the ship owner on how to make their ship look harder. It's a bit like if you've got a house, the first thing you do is you put a lock on your door, then you put a light that comes on when people come down the, uh, the path, etc., etc. Well, it's so that you can put protective measures onto your ships, whether it be barbed wire, fire hoses, using evasive manoeuvres whilst you're at sea, full speed ahead, all those kind of things that will make your ship a more difficult target to hit. BIMCO, and I'll keep on talking about BIMCO. BIMCO is the Baltic International Maritime Council. It represents approximately 65% of the world's tonnage um, and is one of the biggest and most influential shipping associations around today. And they have made a lot of their money by... Um, putting in contracts that are accepted by the industry and used from then onwards. They did a lot of work um, and they came up with a particular uh, document called GuardCon, um, which was an evolutionary document that was introduced at the beginning of last year. Whilst not perfect, nothing ever is, but it, is, it, was, a, it, it was a landmark uh, document and a, a piece of foundation for maritime security. Um, and then we have been working very hard on making sure that the private maritime security companies understand what they have to do to get GuardCon right, but also insurance for those companies is absolutely key. And, and we can talk more later on about um, getting insurance for private maritime security companies, basic, bearing in mind that you are employing private individuals to possibly shoot and kill other private individuals. 
Is it legal? Is it illegal? If it's illegal, your insurance is null and void and you therefore won't be taken on board the ship. So there's a whole load of legal and insurance complexities there, but we are working with the largest, Marsh is the largest um, ship uh, broker or marine insurance broker, so we work with them on that. So here we are, we've got ISO, what's called ISO PAS 28007. I've talked about how it was, how it came about. ISO 28000 covers supply chain security, which is why it's the, the natural fit to go in there. Um, and PAS, what that means, there are two kind of ISOs that I'm going to talk about, I'm going to become a bit of a spotter now with regards to accreditation and regulation. When you introduce a, 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 um, an ISO, whether it be 9001, which is what most people are familiar with, it can come in two versions. It can either just pop out as an ISO, and what has to happen is that in order to be able to do that, you have to go to the technical committee and lock them away, as it were, for three years. At the end of that three years, an ISO will pop out. If you need something much faster than that, the shortcut or swift route to do it is that you formulate um, a standard between interested players, which is exactly what we did, and you then call it a publicly available specification. That then has a life of three years from when it's issued, which was 26th of November last year. During that period of time, it can be amended, adjusted, improved, or whatever. At the end of that three years, you can either get rid of it if it hasn't been used, you can extend it for another three years, or it can become an ISO. Okay? So what we're hoping is that it will improve, it will evolve over the three years, and then it will be adopted. Meanwhile, inevitably, um, and this is one of the things that Jan uh, touched on, there are other people doing other things, and the Americans really don't want to be left out uh, in the cold on this one. And so uh, the American National Standards Institute um, and the American Society for Inter Industrial Security, ACES, which whilst being international and does have a significant international representation, still has quite an American slant on it, um, are working on producing what's called PSCs, private security companies, a particular document that's come out. PSC1 came out at the beginning of last year. And the idea behind this is that the, there will be a standard set um, for the way in which private security companies and private military companies go about their business. Now they come more of the pedigree of the Montreux document and the ICOC, because again, a lot of it was based on what companies do in times of armed conflict on land, um, so, so, so that's the kind of pedigree line that they have taken. They're also drawing up PSC4, um, and I'm not sure exactly what the drafting status of that is, um, but that's going to cover maritime security. My question is to what end, because we've already got everything working by the IMO, and it is unlikely that, the, um, that this will be adopted by the IMO because they've already got the ISO that works exactly for them. So, not quite sure what is happening there, and to be honest with you, I don't think anybody is. Next stages with the ISO. Because, okay, we've got this standard. You can go and buy it, 116 um, Swiss francs, and you have it in your little palm, about 34 pages worth of information, um, that lays out very clearly what private maritime security companies should do. Um, it was welcomed by the IMO um, at MSC 91 last year, um, 
but now it is up to the International Accreditation Council and the various national accreditation bodies to decide upon how this standard is going to be turned into something against which you can audit. Now there's a problem here because the way that that has happened previously if we're talking purely land is that you would get the standard and then you would give it to your accreditation bodies that are nationally accepted. So for instance in the United Kingdom UCAS would say okay you know A.B. Jones can do it um, Black and White Smith can do it and this that, and the other. The key difference is here that the flag states will only accept certain authorities to do their um, certification for them and what they normally do is they go to the classification societies because if you can imagine the classification societies are the guys that give ships their MOT certificate, their seaworthiness certificate. So that's their default setting, that is where they go. And many of the companies that are claiming that they will be able to do accreditation of private maritime security companies have got no track record as far as the flag states concerned. But the next problem is, you remember I was talking about this shrinking market, go down to about 50 companies. There are 19, no sorry, 13 classification societies that are in the market at the moment that are regarded to be top tier. And if there's only 50 companies out there, that's not many. Lloyd's Register, for instance, which is one of the biggest, um, has 19% of the market as far as shipping is concerned. 19% of uh, 50 companies is 10. Are they going to have a whole department doing that for 10 companies? I don't think so. The likelihood is, or there's a, there's a strong possibility that none of the classification societies will see the business case or the merit or the worth in doing it. And nobody can tell them to do it. So that's a problem that has to be overcome. And indeed, I was speaking to Lloyd's, sorry, I was speaking to UCAS about this particular problem yesterday. And I'm seeing Lloyd's register in a few weeks just to see if there is any traction there. Um, and also the other one is lack of experience of auditors. Um, because most of them are actually working and doing the job. Uh, we haven't had long enough for people to come out and say, right, okay, now I want to go and audit people. Now, I, I don't see that as a significant problem because I think if they can see consistency of work and experience, I think that will work. But there are challenges ahead and having the document in your hand is not the answer to this whole thing. It may well be that it will take another year before we've actually got the next set of challenges resolved. And then the last topic I'll touch on, and I'm then going to stop and we can go through questions, um, is... Rules for the use of force versus rules of engagement. Clear difference here. RUF is defensive, ROE is offensive. But in order for, because nation states will use ROE, whereas um, what the guys are doing at the moment on the, on, on the high seas, they use RUF. But there is no one single RUF. Each company has its own. And so one of the things that we're working very um, hard on is actually formulating a standardized set of uh, RUF, a benchmark RUF that can be used using, utilizing many of the best legal brains we can find that understand this kind of thing. Okay, so in summary, 
Private maritime security is a growth industry. It's not just a short-term opportunity because people moving things by sea, as long as people move things by sea, there is going to be a security concern. And with the navies disappearing, it's there. The dynamics between commercial shipping stakeholders are extremely complex. When you talk about maritime security, you have to understand that bit to be able to do that bit at sea. If you don't, if you don't understand the shipping market and if you don't talk to them on a regular basis, it won't work. The comment that was said by that big security company, the only difference between land security and maritime security is the land is blue, was so wrong. Um, evolution of maritime security has moved swiftly, but it isn't there yet. Um, and our UFI believe will be the next step.